Today's scripture is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Hey, we are um, glad that you're here with us at our Sunday gathering, especially if you're new. Um, this is what we do. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through uh, 1 Samuel. And we're going to be here for, for, for a little while, and then we'll pick up, say, yep, you got it, 2 Samuel. And uh, so if you have uh, your Bible, you'll want to keep it open or your app or whatever you're, you're, you're reading God's Word on or those notebooks that we have, you'll want to keep those open because we're going to walk through uh, this text and, uh, and, and see what, what God has to say to us this morning. Um, living in the glory days. Most of us are familiar with that phrase or that, that term, right? Days when things were good, maybe even great. Tales that people tell, right, where they hit their peak or their stride in life, where they basked in the glory of, of, of some event usually, right? And people like to relive those days, reminisce about those days, recapture the feelings of those days. But something I think all of us realize about the glory days is that that glory does what? Fades. Now, tragically, and we all have probably observed this before, some fail to acknowledge it's fading. And that, how many of you would, would agree, that's kind of painful to watch, right? 
um, the high school quarterback. I mean, cowboy fans, you understand this well. <laughs> I'll leave that set there. The pun is fully intended here, but these are not the glory days for Israel. They've just suffered two defeats here in chapter 4 at the hands of their greatest enemy, the Philistines. But that's not the worst defeat of all. The worst defeat is that they have lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark represented God's presence with his people. It was the place where the literal presence, in fact, of God rested. And now that finds itself in the hands of the Philistines. In Israel's history, in fact, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and the beginning of 7, just a bit of 7, is known as the Ark Narrative. This is some of the darkest times in Israel's history. But remember how we got here. Remember how this story unfolds for Israel. It wasn't overnight that they just lost the presence of God or suffered these defeats. There has been a long, faithful unfaithfulness to God's leadership. There has been a long irreverence to God, dismissing him, ignoring him, normalizing him, marginalizing him by the leaders on down. Remember the end of the book of Judges that set the context, and we'll say it over and over again for First and Second Samuel. And the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. That's the context that we find this defeat happening. And so this morning, as was last week when Jake preached it, chapter four is a warning. It is a warning to God's people. It's also a reminder, a reminder of God's infinitely, in, infinite glory, that that glory will not be shared or manipulated. It's a warning and it's a caution to us, to a people who have a tendency toward objectifying God. And what I mean by that is making God a tool or an object for our use and for our glory. Warning passages are never fun to preach, I must tell you. And they're never fun to necessarily hear, but they're good for us. This is a tragic scene. People are losing their lives in battle. Eli loses his life. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die. Phinehas' wife dies in childbirth. And the glory of God is seemingly gone. And in many ways, it is gone. And I use my language very carefully there. The presence of God, the glory of God, is seemingly gone. And the thrust or the, the meat of this section is found in the last verse that Vivian read so eloquently. In verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. The glory is gone. The ark is gone. You see, here is the devastating effect of a people who objectify God. The devastating effect of a people who objectify God, here it is. You lose the presence of God. Now, I am not talking about the, the, the omnipresence of God. God's presence is everywhere at all times, in all spaces, in all places. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the manifest presence of God. When you objectify God. So the warning, the first warning, I think there are four from 1 Samuel 4. The first warning is this. Don't treat God like an object. 
God will not be treated like an object. And this is our tendency. So we can't just look at Israel and go, shame on Israel. Man, they really dropped the ball. They were really crooked as a nation. This is our heart's tendency as well. To treat God, as Jake used over and over last week, as useful. As an object that, 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 that God can be beneficial to us on our terms and for our purposes. You see, we, we ask a question. When we treat God as an object, here's the question we are asking about God. And listen to this. See if your heart has ever asked this. How can we or how can I bring God into my life on my terms for my purpose? Who's the center of that question? You are. We are. We treat God like he's just there for a transaction. I give him this and then he gives me that. There was no clearer picture of this than last week, right? When they go into that first battle against the Philistines. And what happens? They're defeated. Then they look around, they're like, wait a minute. We know what we forgot. The ark. We will win if we bring the ark of the covenant in here. And so what do they do? Hophni and Phinehas, they would have been the ones carrying the ark, by the way. And you know their, their whole routine from chapters one in, or chapters two and chapters three, right? They go get the ark, and they come carrying it down. Everybody's shouting, man, they're having a worship service. Not really a worship service, but they're shouting. They're hollering. They're going, we're going to win this one. They come into that battle, and what happens? The second battle. They're defeated even worse, treating God like an object a mere object, a tool, a commodity to be wielded however they want, right? And that's the definition of a tool, right? You think of the, the epitome of a tool when you think of that uh, is a hammer, right? That hammer can either be used for destruction or it can be used for creating, right? Construction, uh, building, and things like that. But who decides what it's used for? The person who holds that tool, the person who is in control, and so the Israelites with the ark on their shoulders coming into battle going, we got it. The hammer is in our hands. We're going to control this. Watch what a curse. And God goes, I will not be shared. I will not be objectified. I will not be used as a commodity for your gain and your glory. And they lose. And the ark goes away. The presence of God goes away. Now I want to stop here and I want to think about the word objectification. In our culture, that is not an unfamiliar word, and it simply means this. If you just looked it up, objectification is the action of degrading someone to the status of a mere object. Did you get that? A person degrading them to the status of an object. Now, I want to submit to you, when we objectify God, when we make him a tool or useful unto us, we fail to recognize God as a person. When we objectify God is when we fail to recognize God as a person. Now, we could take a massive theological cannonball into some very deep waters right here, okay? Which we won't. But I want to stay at a foundational level here as our God as a person. So what we believe as Christians, there's a distinct belief that we hold as Christians, and it's this that we have one God in three distinct 
persons. See, that's why I need to go over this, okay? One God, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, okay? There is a reason that our Bible paints God in that way. There's a reason that over and over, constantly in the scriptures, God is being painted in relationship with his people and also with himself, that God the Father is glorifying the Son and the Spirit, and the, and the Son is doing that to the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit is doing that to the Son and the Father. They're in relationship, and that doctrine has a title that's called the Trinity. This triune God, one God, three persons. And it reminds us that our God is not some spiritual force. He's not a, a mystical power. Our God is a person in relationship, and we were created, Genesis 1.27, in his image. And so listen, when we objectify God, we are removing his personhood. We're removing his very character and his very nature and treating him like a tool or an object for our gain. And listen, we struggle with, I'm convinced one of the reasons we struggle to take God as a person or a relational God is this, because we really like control. We really like to be in charge, or at least I do, and maybe I'm just talking to myself. We like to even control how God works, how he operates, his timing, his movement. But with a person, God to person, it's so much deeper than that. And Paul gets this. This is 1 Corinthians 8. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. So he's contrasting there knowledge that puffs up, meaning pride, and then love that builds up, builds up in humility. And he goes on in verse 2. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul's going, listen, if you, if you, if you think you know something about God, if you think you got God figured out, if you think you've got this corner on how God works and how he operates, listen, you don't know Jack. That's what Paul says right there, my translation, but that's what he says. Look it up in the Greek, okay? You don't have it figured out. But he goes on to clarify. He says, but if anyone loves God, oh, there it is. But if anyone loves God, he is then known by God. If you love God, what is love attached to? Love is a feeling that is attached to a relationship between persons and people, not a transaction. If you know, if you love God, you then are known by God. We know God as a person, and then in turn, we are known by God. You want to know if you treat God like an object or a tool or a commodity? Here's one of the ways you test that. How do you treat other people? Do you treat other people like an object? You objectify people. See, when God becomes an object used for our glory and our gain, we tend to strip other people of their personhood. We begin to, to objectify them as well. Tools accomplished whatever we want to accomplish. That's how you can in turn go back and go, okay, how do I view God? How I view God will be directly related and correlated to how I treat you, how I treat my spouse, how I treat my kids, my neighbors this church, this community of people. 1 Samuel, we have seen the spiritual leaders mistreat the people of God. Remember what they were doing with the sacrifices brought to the tabernacle? 
They were meant to steward those and, and, and rightly handle those. And, and what were they doing? Eating them, devouring them, objectifying people. You bring your sacrifices that are meant to be given to God, and I'm going to consume them. But let's, again, be honest. Relationships are hard. True? Yes, it is true. They take work and attention and care. And wouldn't you know it, relationships can seem at times to stall out something we're all very addicted to. Progress. Forward movement. You see, we prefer people and a God who works according to our way and our plan to our advantage. Oh, and when that happens... We'll be quick to give God all the glory. Right? No. What happens? We beat our chest. I did so good. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at what we accomplished. And this is what we see playing out in 1 Samuel 4. The glory is not the glory of God on display. It is the self-glory on display. This is the next warning that we are warned not to seek our own glory over God's. Think about this scene here for a minute. If you have your text, just we're going to go through it really quickly. A, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle. So there's this scene where all the defeats have happened. The ark has been stolen. This, this, this man comes. Why did he add Benjamin, his tribe? Because there's going to be another man who shows up from the tribe of Benjamin here in, in 1 Samuel. And the Israelites are going to put their faith in him too. His name's Saul, a Benjamin. And so he comes and he's torn up. Now, I don't think from battle, but I think from mourning, actually mourning the loss of the ark. And he shows up and Eli is heavy there at the gate watching, but it says he can't see. So what's he watching? I don't know, okay? Um, but he hears, he can hear okay. And he hears an uproar and he goes, what's that uproar? Do you remember the last time we heard an uproar? At the beginning of chapter four, what were they doing? They were shouting because they were bringing the ark of God in. Now they're, they're in another uproar and it's morning. We've lost it. The ark is gone. And Eli goes, that's a different shout. I can't see very well, but that's a different shout. And so this man comes and he gives Eli the news. He says, we've lost the battle. We've lost the ark. You've lost your sons, which was prophesied to Eli. And in verse 18 is very interesting here. It says, as soon as he, the messenger, mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward. It wasn't when the loss of his sons came. It wasn't when the battle had been lost. When was it that Eli, the high priest, fell over when the presence of God left, when the ark of God was gone. You see, there has been this play on words happening all throughout chapter four and really all throughout 1 Samuel to this point. And I've been, I've been real careful not to hit it, but just kind of tap at it for, for a few weeks. And it centers on the Hebrew word kavod, kavod, K-A-V-O-D. It's the Hebrew word for glory. 
His Hebrew word for glory and its forms have been used and woven by the author craftfully throughout these first four chapters. Now, glory is a massive word, right? With so many definitions, so many meanings that, that, that it can be confusing sometimes. But I, I want us to laser in and think about the word glory for just a moment because that's what the author is cueing in on. The meaning for glory, um, this word kavod, could, could be its literal sense, meaning that something is glory, it's heavy or weight. You ever heard the weight of glory, right? That, that, is, that is a literal sense of what glory is. But there are also two figurative senses. The word can mean someone or something's significance in meaning and honor. It's reputation. So there is a certain level of glory. I'm going to use this example twice. Uh, with, with the president of the United States, there's just some glory with that office, okay? There's some reputation that comes with it. That's a figurative sense. But also there's a figurative sense that has a um, concrete working out, to use the president. So if the president were to come to downtown McKinney, Right? And some of you who have lived in cities where the prisoners showed up or spaces and places, you know what happens. They're going to shut down downtown McKinney and probably 50 blocks outside of this. Secret Service is going to show up a month early. They're going to be all over. Like It's going to look radically different than what we're able to walk out into, right? Why? Because of glory. Because of a manifestation of someone's significance or reputation. That's what the definition or the word simp simply glory means. Now, we want to look at it as ascribed to God. However, what's played out in 1 Samuel is that glory is not terminating on God. Glory is actually terminating on Eli. And this word kavod is played out. The first time we see it is in chapter 2. Flip back there real quick because I want you to see this. Chapter 2, verse 29. This is when the prophet comes to Eli to tell him his two sons are going to die and to rebuke him. He says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices? This is the word of the Lord through the prophet to Eli. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwellings and honor your sons above me, above God, by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel. Did you get it there? Probably not, because the word used there in the English is fattening, heavying. It's a word kavod. Why are you taking the glory, God is asking, that is due me for yourself? Eli, you honor you. In your job, high priest, is what? To honor me and care for the people. You have treated me as an object. And so Eli and his sons, they would have had special garments, special things that they would have known as the ephod. And the ephod would have been this beautiful outer layer that the high priest would have worn to represent the tribes of Israel, the glory of God, and the people to remind them how to pray, just this beautiful garment that Eli would have had. However, what we see here is very reminiscent of Matthew 23, where Jesus goes to the religious leaders. And if you remember Matthew 23, it's a scathing rebuke. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he goes, you are whitewashed tombs. Your exterior is all clean and fancy and radiating glory, but on the inside, you are dead. And for Eli, the reason he is dead is because he has taken the glory all upon himself. Proverbs says this about that fact. It says, Proverbs 12, verse 9, better to be lowly 
and have a servant than to play the great man, Kavod, the great glorious man and lack bread. Eli was playing dress up with the ephod. He was playing dress up on the outside, but the inside, he was empty. The glory. You don't believe me? 1 Samuel 4, 18, the text that we read this morning. The author wants us to be very clear why Eli lost his life. It says, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and Kavod, heavy, heavy with his own glory, heavy with his own weight that he put on himself by stealing and robbing from the people of God things, were right, things that were rightly due to God. You see, what the author is telling us about Eli's death and from Eli's death is that there's a bigger picture of what's at play here. There's a bigger picture at play when you're stealing God's glory for yourself. And listen to me, God's glory hasn't changed. His glory has not changed one bit, but the people have changed their allegiances in their hearts. That's what's changed in this text. And what happened over and over in the nation of Israel, Jeremiah, another prophet, will say this in chapter 2. He says, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit We make this exchange all the time, church, in our lives individually, in our lives corporately, settling for lesser glory, settling for self-indulgent glories. And there is a consequence when we continue to objectify God for ourselves and self-glory. And here it is, Hosea 4-7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. That is playing out in real time with Eli. You see, we fall into this same trap. We put ourselves in the center of the story, believing that everything gravitates around us and is for us. In the story, Eli ends up full of his own glory, and that ends up being the very thing that kills him. Overweight, fat, heavy, kavod, full of his own glory. And this is what happens when God is used for a means to our own benefit, rather than us seeing and living with God as the center seeing God as glorious, seeing God as the significant one, seeing God as the weight, seeing his glory that is rightly due him and seeing him inviting us into the story that he is writing. We preached uh, uh, several months ago a a series around this idea that that God is the author, both of the word of God and, and the story that he's writing. But how often do we try to snatch that pen out of his hand and try to write our own story? Listen, you don't want to be the author of your story. You say, Kyle, why not? That sounds pretty fun to me, right? I'd like to know the outcomes. I would like to pin that. No, you don't. How has it worked out for you currently? Right, where you've tried to assert control or manipulate an outcome. How did that turn out when you grabbed the pen and began to write? Usually not very good. Oh, Oh, maybe for a season. But let me tell you where it ultimately ends. Like Eli heavy, old, full of your own glory. And the reason you don't want to have the pen in your hand is this, is because your sight, my sight, is limited. You see, our author, God, who is the center of it all, he is the one who knows and sees all things. 
Your bent and my bent is inward and towards self, and God is completely other. And so when we objectify God, when we begin to turn glory into self and self-glory begins to flow out from us, here's what happens. We become shallow and really short-sighted. And that, I want to submit to you, is what's playing out in verses 19 through 22. So Phineas, his wife, another birth scene, very different than Samuel's birth scene, um, is, is, is brought in. She's having a baby, and her nurse, um, all the defeats and all the words and, and, and the loss of Phineas's life comes uh, to, to his wife. And the nurse, you can, you can see it in the text. She's like, hey, you've born a son. Hey, there's some good news breaking through. You've born a son. And it's, the mom doesn't want to hear it. You can see it. She doesn't want to hear it. She's overstricken with grief at what has taken place. So much so that when she's laid this child on her lap, she names him Ichabod. Now, we've kind of westernized that and called it Ichabod. This is Ichabod. Glory. Except there's a preface. No. No glory. Glory's gone. The glory has departed. Why would she name him that? Because that's all she can see. All she can see is that we've lost the ark. Our family is all gone. Eli is gone. Hophni is gone. My husband, Phineas, is all gone. And maybe she's even selfishly naming him that. Going, the glory that our family had, all the self-glory, guess what? It's now even all gone. There's no lineage. There's no glory for you. But she was also making a theological statement to go in Israel, the presence of God, is now exiled. It's gone. It's been removed. And the author repeats himself, look in that small little section over and over and over the same thing. The glory's gone. There's no glory. The ark is gone. It's making a point. There's no glory. But I have a question. Where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? I'm like, dude, your name is on both of these books, right? One Samuel, two Samuel, you're the same. Where are you? Where are you at? Look back at verse one of chapter four. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. There he is. You remember where Samuel was last chapter? Where was he sleeping? Right by the ark. The word of God then came to all of Israel through Samuel. But it's like in verse 2, the battle just begins. And this story of Israel's destruction, the presence of God going out and being lost, is what takes center stage. Where is Samuel? What's he doing? What's going on? It's as if the, the author is trying to get us to overlook Samuel like Israel overlooked Samuel. And this is where I'm talking about being shallow and short-sighted. You see, what Phineas' wife should have recognized and the people of God recognized when the ark was taken, when they were defeated in battle, going, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is a guy. There is a faithful one. His name is Samuel, whom the word of God is going forth to all Israel. That's what verse 1 says. But we don't see Samuel again until 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. His name is going to be silenced until then. Why didn't they go to him? Why didn't they come before him? Because they're shallow and short-sighted. Why was he overlooked? Because the words of a prophet weren't something they could manipulate. They could just listen to them and go on their way. 
seeking their own glory. The words probably Samuel spoke seem so impractical or trite. They were going, no, what we need is a victory, a victory over the Philistines on our terms in our way so that we can go back to our self-glory. And what Samuel would have said, because he's a man of God with the word of God, is this, no, what you need more than a victory is this, you need the presence of God. And the presence of God is only given to those who handle it rightly. So Samuel's call to them, let me tell you, we don't have to guess what it would have been. Repent, turn, turn from your objectification of God, turn from your self-glory. Turn from your shallowness and your short-sightedness to God, and he'll be there. You see, they were so unaware of the presence of God. They thought it got carried away, and in many facets it did in the Ark of God and the Ark of Covenant. But it was there. It was still there in Samuel. And we won't see it in chapter 5, and we won't see it in chapter 6. People missing what God is doing. You see, chapter four is a warning, like I said at the beginning. And the warning is this to us, church, to you, Christ follower. Be careful. Treat God with the treatment he is due. Don't get so heavy and fat on your fabricated religion and reality, working it for your own benefit and your own glory, treating God as a commodity or, or treating his church or the people as a commodity. In so you will become shallow and short-sighted, so much so that you will miss the bigger picture, the bigger story that God is inviting you into. You see, God's glory will be seen again in Israel. It will. And he will pull his people back into that covenant relationship, back into salvation, but it will be painful and it will not be easy because this kind of idolatry dies hard, dies hard in Israel and it dies hard also in us. See, I was thinking about Samuel, rejected to the sidelines, as irrelevant, silenced, silencing the word of God, probably even despised because of what he was calling them to. Who does that sound a lot like? Isaiah 53, the prophetic word about the Messiah, that he would be despised and rejected that he would be sidelined. Why? Why did the religious leaders sideline Jesus for the same reason Samuel was sidelined? Because they couldn't control him. He didn't do what they expected him to do. He didn't say what they wanted to hear. Surely this man is not doing what God wants him to do by laying down his life. And so they crucified him. They crucified him. And Paul picks up on this thought of God working and moving in very unexpected ways, but in a far grander scale in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, what is not glorious in the world to shame the glory. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing that things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God operate like that? So that we don't take the glory. 
what is God consumed with? Himself being rightly glorified. What is God protecting us from? Us turning inward and going, here's where the glory belongs. And so God works totally counter to what we prefer sometimes, what we expect oftentimes, but it's all for the same point, his glory, his weight, his significance, his majesty to actually be seen. What does God's movement look like? (laughs) Whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, Uh, I'm going to end with this quote here. Uh, One of the members of our teach team sent this to me this weekend, and I think it really captures where I want to go in our response time. Uh, It's from uh, Irenaeus of Lyons. And this is, uh, Lyons would have been a place in South France that that Irenaeus would have uh, have been serving. And it's believed that Irenaeus, um, sometime in the second century, probably was a martyr. Um, And it said this statement, Um, that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Now, don't for a minute (laughs) take that and turn that into a self-glory statement. You see that again, back to the song we were even singing about love, that has an embodied person. That person is Jesus We have never seen or witnessed someone actually fully alive except the Christ. You want to know what being fully alive looks like? Read the Gospels, right? Go home and read the Gospel of John. That's what it looks like to be fully alive. It's embodied in Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, if we are going to glorify God, those who have been saved by Christ, who are we to look like? That's what Christian means. Little Christ. What does it mean to be fully alive? What it means to be fully alive is to look like Jesus, full of love and truth and grace and humility and sacrifice and generosity like we can't in this world, cannot fathom. And when that's the pursuit, oh, all of the self-glory and all of the pride begins to fall. And so as we take these elements, as we prepare for that, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would do what a sermon cannot, that he would illuminate and make each of these words personal to you and me to identify those idols in our heart where we are just objectifying God, using him as a tool, where we're pointing inward for self-glory, where where there are just areas of deep-rooted pride that he wants to rid us of for his glory and for our good so that we don't end up like Eli, blind, sitting there, so self-absorbed, where we eventually just fall over. So let me pray for us. Hosts, you can get ready on communion. Father, take this time, this designated time that we have carved out, and God, make Jesus the most fully alive to us, God, you are most glorified when Jesus is seen in us, when our satisfaction is in him and him alone, when our living is in him and mirrors him alone. So Father, even as we hold the bread and the juice, may it be a reminder in our hands 
of sacrifice, of devotion, of glory. Holy Spirit, use this moment however you see fit. Let us not squander it, but instead let us glorify you with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Host, you can lead us.